Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Greater Than Code. You can find all of the details at linode.com slash greater than code. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7-365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com slash greater than code and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. everybody, and welcome to episode 226 of Greater Than Code. My name is Jacob Stobel, and I'm joined with my co-panelist, John Sowers. Thank you, Jacob, and I'm here with Lori Barth. Thanks, John. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Kurt Kempel. Kurt is a technical writer, speaker, and software developer living in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He's very passionate about the intersection of technology and incarceration. Currently, he works at Apollo GraphQL as a developer relations manager, and when not working, he can be found by the ocean or relaxing with his family, which sounds really incredible. So, Kurt, I'm going to have you start us off by answering the question we ask all of our guests, which is, what is your developer superpower? Uh, well, first, thank you for that awesome introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, so diving into what is my superpower? I thought about this a lot, and like, I'm not really someone who I feel has like some innate, you know, skill or ability that really makes me stand out in any particular area. But I think one thing that I do really well uh, is I care very much about lifting up the people around me. And I work actively to generally help others more than I'm helping myself. And I think, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of mentality. And I think that that is definitely something that sets me apart is I gauge my success by how successful folks around me are. That sounds fantastic. Was that something you, you felt like you've always done or was it something do you consciously develop or did it just sort of come around? I think it evolved out of situations in my life. I've dealt with like a lot of, of stressful situations and it's pretty tough upbringing. And I think a lot of it is just finding opportunities to make sure people don't have to experience those things and not being so drastic that it's like always in relation to something very life altering. But I just, there's something about removing roadblocks for other folks that you have the ability to do that is very rewarding to me. And I think I just started to realize that later in life, that it's something I value greatly. That's really interesting to hear because I think in a lot of areas of, you know, technology and in, in the industry, we often hear people saying like, I had to do it. So you have to do it too. I've heard that with sort of the toxic interview. It's almost like hazing mentality and the tools may be abstracted, but if you don't know the super, super low level piece of it, then you're never going to understand it the way I do sort of mentality. A lot of this gatekeeping stuff comes from that. So it's really refreshing to hear that you feel sort of the opposite of that. 
Yeah, like I remember very distinctly, you know, many times starting out programming, like getting the response, RTFM, right? Like it's like, you know, people, they don't want to help for whatever reason. They want you to, it's like almost like a badge of honor, like forcing folks to figure things out for themselves. And there's something to be said with like taking on learning as your own responsibility, but like part of learning is knowing how to get answers and like ask for help when you aren't figuring it out. And so, yeah, I definitely really cannot stand to see that kind of lift the ladder up behind me mentality or pull yourself up by the bootstraps type mentality. So who are those people around you in your role with Apollo? Like who are the people that you would measure the success of? Yeah. So it's actually spread out across multiple things, but I'll start from Apollo. So I'm a manager of the developer relations team. So definitely my direct reports absolutely care about how well they are doing as well as the DX organization. It extends out to there. We're all part of developer experience and we want to make sure that things we're doing is helping lifting up the education team and, and DX as a whole. And then, of course, that spreads out into Apollo, which is just like by helping developers be successful with Apollo, we're actually helping Apollo succeed. But when we talk about developer relations, really, that's just communities I'm involved with at all. And so that could be anybody from the communities that I'm a part of, whether that's like content creation, DevRel, like things around GraphQL or developments, it could be anything related to that, pretty much any person that I have interaction with, I start to look at ways in which I can help them move forward. You know, it's funny, the phrase bootstrap is so embedded in our culture because it's come in from, it's it's technical terminology at this point, but it, it's so interesting and I think important to think back to like the origin of that phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps was satirical because it's obviously not possible to do that for you. Like you can't lift yourself by grabbing yeah. your boots and, and, so, and like, and that's the whole point, but it's because it's almost like turned over on itself and becoming like, Oh, that's just what you do. Um, like yeah. as economic policy or as social policy, you know, despite the fact that like it was originally the complete opposite of that. Yeah, it's funny. I never really thought about that, but it's very true, right? Like they took something that was meant to be like satire, like, oh yeah, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and then turned it into something serious. I still view it as satire. Like to me, it's the silliest phrase ever. But yeah, a lot of folks take that very seriously. You know what else is satire or was originally satire was the word meritocracy. Uh, oh, wow. Was, yeah, it was like basically like, oh, the new aristocracy of people who think they're on top because of their merit. It's the meritocracy. Something else I think about is like the phrase self-taught X, self-taught developer, self-taught engineer, or like the million blog post medium posts of like how I taught myself to code in 12 weeks. <laughs> like what does that mean? Taught yourself? Do you really not? I mean, like, do you have no interactions with any human? <laughs> you did anything I, a human produced <laughs> yeah the self-taught thing is actually really complicated and nuanced in my mind because a lot of people like to claim it and say well we're all self-taught because we all you know read blog posts and have to teach ourselves other things because as a developer you're always learning new things and so we can all claim that title and then there's the area of people who consider themselves self-taught but they were working you know one-on-one -on -one through dms with someone that is a working developer and they know really well. 
But then there's actually a last category of people, which is what I feel the label was sort of designed for, which is they never had any formal classroom experience that taught them like the variable goes on the left side of the expression. And so they had to learn just those super fundamental syntactical things through reading and through, you know, example videos and potentially sometimes asking questions, but it was a very async process. And I think that's what self-taught is designed to imply, that there wasn't a curriculum laid out in front of them and that they didn't have sort of a helping hand along the way. And I think there's something incredibly powerful about that. And I hate the idea that it's been co-opted as like, well, everyone's self-taught. I'm like, no, I got to sit in a computer science program and have teachers tell me what I needed to know in a certain order. And was that necessarily the best way for me to learn? No. Did I have to go in and teach myself how to do things after that fact and for the rest of my career? Absolutely. But did I have some of those baseline foundational things conveyed to me based on someone who knew the order of operations of learning this topic? I did. So I am not self-taught in any sense of the word. Yeah. I think that's very interesting point. And what I've been using, so I'm I'm the other end of that spectrum. No official, uh, that's actually not true. I took intro or intermediate web development course when I was incarcerated. But like, this was basically, here's a book on HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and like, good luck. But aside from that, I had no real formal education, but I've adopted the term self-guided, which I feel is a better descriptor of that. Cause it's more about like guiding yourself through a curriculum to learn programming. Right. And it's like, you're pulling bits and pieces from wherever you can find it to create your own curriculum is essentially what you're doing. But I did learn from lots of other folks along that journey, both through asynchronous communication and DMS, watching videos, reading blog posts and stuff. So it's not like, you know, I was in a, a room with no outside influence and w- had a computer and was like, I will code, you know? So it, it's like, but yeah, I, I think I really like that term self-guided because, you know, that's a better representation, I feel like, of, of what actually happened. I love that. And it reminds me of like, you know, when I was in high school where you get to take like independent study and it's sort of the same concept of you get yeah. to go in depth on a topic, but you're sort of determining what shape that takes and where you go and what you focus on what successful means and yeah and i like no one will probably care to be truthful no one will actually care if you don't do it (laughs) yeah yeah that's the other thing self-motivated is a Mm -hmm. big part of that right like no one's grading papers or assignments there's no papers in coding um no one's grading (laughs) grading assignments you don't have deadlines that are imposed by other people. If you buy the course and you never watch a single video, the only one accountable for that is sort of like sunk cost fallacy of having wasted the money. There's nothing forcing you to power through. And that's actually a great way to prepare yourself for coding on the job, right? (laughs) Because it's like, Technically, there's just this ticket and you need to be looking at it and feel this sense of like, oh, no, I need to get this done because <laughs> no one can actually force you to do it. Yeah, that's uh, that's very accurate. <laughs> so Kurt, it sounds like from your bio there that, you know, you're the group of people that you consider yourself to be responsible for helping to lift up is beyond just the team that you're responsible for. So uh, I'd love to hear more about like the other groups that you're working with on that level. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's interesting when we talk about like community and groups and to me, like community is not like a thing with guidelines and like boundaries. Community is whoever you surround yourself with. Right. And so like, to me, there is no React community or GraphQL community. There's just people in my community who happen to know React or GraphQL. And I think it's an interesting way to look at community because it breaks down a lot of barriers. But if we do talk about like specific groups, I am very into the intersection of incarceration and technology. And the reason why is because I myself am formerly incarcerated and getting into tech had such a drastic effect on my life. So it just, you know, naturally I want to, and again, a lot of this motivation for lifting others up stems from this, right? Like I feel like I am often sitting on a gold mine, you know, and I feel selfish when I know that there are people who were in a similar situation who are coming out of prison and don't have any idea that this industry exists, that they can have a future in it with some self-guided learning and some hard work, right? And like a lot of perseverance. It's by no means easy. Let's let's be real. Coding is, is a very difficult skill, but most folks can accomplish that goal of learning it. And it just feels like if I'm not actively working to help expose people who are coming out of incarceration, find this industry and see if it's a fit for them, then I feel like I'm just like, you know, holding something that I should be freely giving away. And I think a lot of where it comes with lifting others up is that feeling of like, I'm holding something that other people should have access to, right? And like, that's education, information. I don't you know, when we talk about self-guided, it's actually one thing about picking your own curriculum that is anxiety-inducing is, am I picking the right things to learn? The industry is huge. And, you know, you could pick so many different things. And I lucked out that I was introduced to something that was a good path into tech for me. And uh, I would like to provide folks coming out the information that the industry exists, but also a little bit of guidance around some of the different ways that you can go and break into it. So yeah, the, I'd say that is definitely a community or a a group of folks in my community that I care deeply about is those who are transitioning from incarceration back into society. I'm curious if, uh, obviously this is an experience in a community that a lot of us don't have a lot of insight into, and it's great that you do and you you have those connections. And can you talk to us a little bit about the kinds of things that we all can do to make that transition easier to support those groups of people, whether it's you know in an organization or outside of that? Yeah, I'll say there's really two avenues to do, like where you could do a lot uh, of good. One is like in destigmatization, right? So it's like sharing information about incarceration, you know, figuring out who these people in the community are, building relationships with them, checking at your companies and seeing if they're adhering to the laws around hiring formerly incarcerated folks. Like a lot of times background checks will violate labor laws within states and companies don't check that. They just, you know, they say, give me the default. I want all the information. It's up to the company to actually check and make sure that they have the proper configuration, that they're not losing people based on like laws. Like a good example of this is in California, they can only look seven years back on your record for criminal 
uh, activity, barring certain types of activity, but for most things, only seven years. However, there's companies that will do background checks and pull stuff up from way back. I had this happen with a company and I was like, hey, you know, just to let you know, like, you're not allowed to pull up information from when you did. Like you showing me that you found my background is actually admitting that you're violating the state laws. Now, here's where the problem lies. It's like it takes people who aren't the ones, the vulnerable being affected by it to push this forward because our only recourse is to hire a lawyer and to fight it in court, right? I'm like jobless, have just come out of prison. I don't have any money for a lawyer to fight some company, right? Like to do that. And then do you want to go now work for a company that you had to fight for the job in court, right? Like, so it takes people who are not in that situation asking their employer, hey, what is our policy on hiring formerly incarcerated? What programs do we have in place to make sure we're not dropping them out of the pipeline? That's a huge one. And then the second one is most people don't really want to go back to prison. That's not always true. You have people who actually do want to go because it's a place where they can get more stability and safety and stuff than they can. And that says a lot about the United States as a whole. But most people, they come out of prison with high hopes. You know, I I wasn't the only one in that web programming class. Like I wasn't the only one learning how to train dogs, learning welding, carpentry, plumbing, like taking every course that was available to me. There's a lot of other folks too. But what people don't have and why recidivism is so high is there's no stability. So these we get these skills. We get out into the world. We have no income. We have no job history for years because of this. Companies that would hire folks for the skills that we have learned are doing background checks and turning us down because of them. So it's like, yeah, we're learning skills. We're learning stuff. But none of it can actually be used until X amount of years after you get out. Uh, And you're just kind of left floating there. So like finding programs, local programs that are based in civil activities, providing housing, providing food, providing access to equipment and education, further education for folks coming out of incarceration. Those are the two best places that you can by far have a huge impact. You know, $50 worth of food can be the difference between somebody going back to prison or not, because if they don't have it, they're going to revert to what they know and what they know is crime often. And then, boom, we go back. And, you know, of course, if we look at who's the most affected by this, it's marginalized communities. So focusing on those communities is especially going to be impactful. Yeah, I would also imagine that the lack of a support system in the outside world is also a huge factor there. Like you were saying the $50, like people that have a support system can probably make do, you know, relying on other people that they know to help out to get by through that part where they need that extra money for food. But if you don't have that, like there aren't really any other options. Yeah. It took me almost three years to land my first job coding as a software developer. And I can pinpoint multiple times during that three years where I came very close to like committing a crime again. And that's wild to think about now. Like now I would never (laughs) in a million years do anything, but I also have stability and like, it's just a living example, somebody directly in front of you, just like proving that the prison system, prison industrial complex is really just like a money-making machine that is not incentivized in any way to help provide you with stability and keep you out of prison. Most of our prisons are actually owned by private businesses. 
and private businesses need revenue. And for a private prison, what do you think the revenue stream is? You know, prison labor, slave labor, uh, you know, me working for 14 cents an hour. That is how they make money. And so, like, what is the real incentivization or real incentive, I guess, is the actual word, to actually have programs to help people be stable when they get out, to provide learning and education around things they'll actually be able to get jobs for, to like not have lobbyists literally fight to keep laws around hiring formerly incarcerated as strict and terrible as they are. So the prison industrial complex literally sends people to Congress, right? And has them lobby against improving these systems. And then they pay people at the state level and it's just like all the way down. You know, they pay judges to make sure they send non-violent uh, offenders into the prison system. You know, um, it's just, it's a nightmare of a system. But yeah, to circle back to that, yeah, that $50 makes a huge difference and can really be the differentiator. For what it's worth, I appreciate you being so candid about all of this. I think it's a topic that some of us are tangentially aware of, but don't necessarily have the specifics. I remember some of this from my poli-sci degree, and it was horrible then, and it's it's worse now. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun or pleasant, but I am privileged enough to be in a position to candidly speak about it. And so, again, if we I'll use manager speak, circle back to <laughs> lifting up others and feeling like I'm holding on to something. This stuff is like really stressful. It's hard to talk about even with as much as I do. But I find that the DMs that I get from folks who are struggling and trying to get into tech and, you know, when they reach out to me and they're like, I found your blog posts or this podcast or video and it gave me hope and like, I'm going to keep trying, you know, that's, that motivates the ever living crap out of me. And it's like far outweighs that pressure. But Another thing, too, is not everyone is in a position to be able to speak about this. It's just I've developed enough of a brand, right, an identity in the industry. I have enough of a work background. The incidents have happened so far in the past now that they can't really be held against me for finding future work. So, you know, not everyone has that situation, you know. I'm curious if you feel like being in the developer relations space has impacted your ability to have those conversations and have those interactions and be more visible compared to, you know, some sort of a, a more IC coding role where you don't necessarily have the same kind of network effect based on the work that you're doing day to day. Yeah. I, Ooh, that's a really interesting insight. I mean, yes, like the faster the audience grows that I can reach, you know, clearly the more people I can reach with this message. Right. And so like, yeah, I definitely think DevRel has put me into a situation where, yeah, I can reach more people faster because my network is growing faster than it was as like an individual contributor. So yeah, hundred percent. I think it's also interesting to find the balance between like we all know how tech folks feel about people being people and having lives outside of technology, right? So it's like finding that line of growing your audience while producing information about things like causes that you care about and stuff while without causing a lot of churn and drop off is like a fee in and of itself. Like every time I tweet about 
prison or something like that. Like I watch my followers drop, you know, it's just like, it's yeah. Like you could, you know, set a clock to it. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting balance to try to not over share in that regard and just continue to like lose audience uh, because then that affects things like algorithms and how many people I reach and stuff. So it's, it is interesting. I never really thought about that though. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that like the, the way you talk about, you know, the work you're doing, you at this point you have the privilege to be able to talk about those things when so many people don't and and that's certainly a, a powerful way to use that privilege that you currently have and and what you're talking about there is like losing follower count which sort of kind of affects your job a little bit and like trying to balance how you're talking about these things you know without costing yourself too much but it's sort of interesting that like those are the costs that you're weighing about speaking out and and you know what those are. And then, and you also know that so many other people can't speak out because their consequences are going to be so much more drastic. Yeah, absolutely. And when we start to like, look at this through the lens of like bias in the industry, right? Like I am cis white dude. I have the benefit of like failing upwards, right? So it's like, me going to prison, I get to spin it as this redemption story, right? And like, I get to be, you know, the symbol of hope for prisoners coming out and breaking into tech. But like, it's not the same story for a lot of folks that I talk to who, uh, you know, don't look like me or aren't, you know, basically white men. So it gets really tough, like the further you get away from that. And uh, yeah, so it's like, I also want to call out too, that like a lot of times the privilege to be able to speak is like based on literal white privilege. Like I always get the benefit of the doubt. Like it's interesting, but like, yes, I get the benefit of the doubt. I get to fail upwards. I'm, you know, formerly incarcerated, who's now the DevRel manager of Apollo. But like, I know so many other formerly incarcerated people who are way better at this stuff than I am, and they still haven't found work yet. And so it's like, those disparities exist. And when you compound other issues that the tech industry faces against that, like the hiring rate for formerly incarcerated black women is like 4%. Or something ridiculous like that, according to last statistics from what I could find, which was like about 2019. So that's 4% compared to white males, which is like about 43 or 44%. Uh, you know, so it's like we have to take that into account, too. So, yeah, yeah, that privilege is is steeped in white male privilege as well. It's like the prison association just magnifies all of those existing inequities. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you're an ex-con or a felon, or I get to be formerly incarcerated, not a felon. Yeah, the language matters a lot. Oh, yeah. So what are some of the details that, like, how are you helping folks? Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a like, I think I saw you. It looks like you have, is it a Twitch stream? I only, I just pulled up your Twitter account just a minute ago, but tell me details. Yeah, so most of it's interesting. So when we think about helping people, yeah, I'm 
stream, which I do a lot, a lot of blogging, involved in a lot of communities. Most of the work that I do, so if we're just talking about community in general, also the Apollo stream, like I do a lot of streaming for them. My calendar's open, folks drop in there a lot. When it comes to helping formerly incarcerated, that's a lot more scaled down and on a one-on-one basis because every single person has a different situation. Also, a lot of them can't come forward and say that they're formerly incarcerated. So there's an entire network of folks. Some of them can, and they have, but there's an entire network of folks who I'm working with regularly and just nobody knows because they can't really share or express that information. But I really focus on a couple things, which is like helping them figure out their path into tech, what it is that they'll like. So, uh, you know, trying to get them guided on that, helping them build their network, teaching them about things like learning in public and how to do that. We work on like freelance because it's really hard for folks to get jobs, full-time employment. So we focus on freelance work and how to like look for red flags and clients and promote yourself and stuff like that. So it's generally different for each person because it all depends on on like where they are on the scale of their education into tech, how stable is their environment at home. So it's just like a lot of things that go into it. I am working on starting a nonprofit to formalize this training, but I it's very slow going. I just really don't have the time, you know, that I would like to dedicate to it. Uh, some other ways that I've been helping out is there's a really cool nonprofit project called the Marshall Project. They take a data-driven approach to exposing uh, issues within the criminal justice system. Uh, So I do a lot of stuff with that. I sponsor and support a lot of prison reform lawyers so they don't get paid a lot and stuff like that. So monetary support for them, monetary support for the people who are coming out who need that. So that's really where I spend most of my focus. But like, if you ask anyone, I'm available. Like I, I, if somebody wants or needs something from me, I try to make myself available. And I talk to a wide range of people from all different communities about all sorts of different things. But yeah, I don't really have a centralized way, you know, like a, a singular path into helping folks out. It's it's pretty disparate, honestly. This is a slightly different topic, but it's something you touched on and what you just said. I'm wondering if we can talk about sort of the interview process as it relates to being formerly incarcerated and revealing that information. Because I think one of the, I had an interaction with someone a couple of years back who said, you know, I got all the way through the process. I didn't tell them they offered me the job. And now I have to tell them because it's about to come up on a background check, which, you know, the efficacy of that we can discuss for a long time, but it's about to come up on a background check. What do I do? Like, how do I have this conversation? And I think, you know, we all know that especially for entry-level positions, there's thousands of applicants. And the minute you give them one red flag, they're like, ah, well, we have 500 other people to talk to. So do you have, what has been your experience with talking to people going through this and sort of how they can navigate what is already an incredibly stressful and difficult process, even not having, you know, some flags that unfortunately don't get perceived the way that that we wish they, they would? Yeah, this is a really great question, and it's it's the most, I won't say the most, it is an extremely stress and anxiety-inducing situation. And so I've developed like a system over the years from having dealt with this, but in the beginning, it was very chaotic. You know, you would just get through the process. You don't say that you, you know, you have a record. You don't come up front and say it. You never do that. So you know, if they're going to do a background check, let them do it. So I've had situations where companies have made me fill out paperwork for a background check and then they never, I guess, submitted it. 
because they never came and said anything about it. Or maybe at that job, they were following their state's laws and it didn't come back. I would say it's a multi-step process. So first things first is never say that you have a background up front. Second of all is investigate the state laws around hiring the formerly incarcerated for that company, for where they are located. Where is their business set up at? Understand those state laws. The next thing that's going to happen is if you get through the interview process and they're going to do a background check. So what they always do, this is the most annoying thing. Oftentimes you will sign your offer letter. You will have a start date. You will do all this. And in there, it says contingent upon a background check. So this puts you in this situation where, especially if you're at an existing company, you know, you want to give them time. Do you put in your leave and throw all of your eggs into this basket only to then come on and then they do the background check and then uh, it comes back and and they they fire you, right? Like, so it's like, it, it puts you in this just purely stressful situation for about two weeks. But a couple things that you can do to get ahead of it is I've started doing things where like, I will message them and I get real creative and I'm like, look, I've had issues with discrepancies with insurance and other things not going through before I've signed my start date. And then there were problems, disagreements. I need to know all the paperwork. I need to have that signed up front and have everything taken care of before I will decide on a start date. I want to make sure I give ample time to leave. So sometimes that will work and that will get you a lot closer. When that doesn't work, the other thing that I do is anytime they're going to do a background check, you have to consent to it. And part of that consent is they'll tell you the company that they're going to use. So if I've made it this far, I will then pay out of pocket and go get my own background check from this company. For most of them, you can do that. And so now what it is, is I just, even if the company reaches out, I will put them off until I get the background check so I can see what has come back about my record so I can better prepare my statement for how I want to discuss this with them. If you make it through all of that and you get there, sometimes they just still aren't going to say no, or they'll just ghost you. And I've had that happen to me too, right? Like uh, just literally been ghosted and it's just hard. It's stressful. There's not a lot you can do with it. The best thing that you can do is understand the laws around the different 50 states Figure out which ones are the most forgiving towards you and your situation. Apply for jobs, ideally remotely within that place. If you're in that position, like a lot of people aren't in that position. But yeah, it's just it's just stress-inducing nightmare. So one thing that I did do is I always had backups. Like I would have offers for multiple jobs and accept multiple offers, which sucks. But then like if I get one and like I stay in, then like I don't. But I would like I would stagger the start dates. Yeah, I learned that from my three years of trying to get my first job, because even trying to work at like Target, Walmart, all these places, I check yes on that, you know, have you been convicted of a felony in the last seven years? And I'd never hear from them. So I just stopped checking it. I would get a job at Target. I would work there for three weeks. And then they would be like, hey, background check came through, like, wish you wouldn't have lied to us. You're one of our best workers, but now we have to let you go. And it's like, well, cool. You wouldn't have hired me anyway. I'll take my three-week paycheck. I've already got a job lined up at McDonald's. So I'm going to go work there for three weeks now. My first two years out of prison, I had like at least 10 W-4s, at least 10, probably closer to 20 my first year. And then like I got a little bit smarter about places that I was picking through the second year. So I was able to stay places longer. But yeah, yeah, you just like have to do whatever you have to do or you have to resort back to crime, <laughs> really. Yeah, that's always my advice to folks is like rolling jobs. Like 
ABA, always be applying, like always be applying for jobs and lining them up. So like you have, so if, you know, they come at you, we did your background check, we're going to let you go. You can just go to the next place and you don't have to go so long without having income. That sounds like an incredibly stressful way to live. It is a very stressful way to live. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) it absolutely is. And that kind of comes back to like, tech can change lives. Like even my first job was a really crappy paying job doing pretty, you know, boring work. But I was so happy when like I actually got my first job. It changed my whole life, like literally changed my life. And then after learning about the industry, finally getting my job, talking to other industry professionals, I was able to realize how drastically underpaid and overworked I was and like slowly start to work my way out of that and up to you know, a, a standard developer salary for this day and age. You know, this it's, is, it's, it's, I make money today that I never dreamed uh, in a world of possibility that I would ever make in my entire life, ever. Never thought that this would be the life that I live today. It, and it can really change folks' lives. And that's why I'm like so aggressively trying to help folks. It's interesting that you talk about always be applying. There was, sort of some Twitter thread stuff going around a couple weeks back about that in relation to the tech industry and talking about, you know, you should always sort of see what's out there and see if there's better possibilities. And my first reaction was interviewing is the most stressful part of working in tech. Who would voluntarily do that if they're not looking to leave a job? And so, you know, I mean, I suspect it is slightly less stressful in some ways if you're applying to retail positions, but more stressful if you're dealing with something like a record and just, yeah, having, having to have that in the back of your mind and always trying to find a new job and that new security is, I mean, we talk about people in tech who do it every one to three years and that already seems like way too often. Every three weeks is just like unfathomable to me. Yeah. You know, it's like you said, it's a lot of stress. You know, by the time you figure out who, you know, who everyone is, you're on to the next place. Uh, you get so tired of hearing you're one of our best workers, but we have to let you go. Like you can only hear that so many times in a year before you just like never want to hear that phrase again. And it's yeah, it's just very like aggravating for sure. I will say that that was less stressful than tech interviews, in my opinion. Ooh, that's <laughs> damning. Yeah. yeah, that was way less stressful. Like I the anxiety of technical interviews, especially when they're asking me questions about my background, because I have to fabricate an entire, basically 10 years of my life. And that is that was one of the hardest parts. So one of the hardest parts about having a record and not being able to share it, especially in an industry where like everybody wants to know how you got there, it's like very hard to build that lie around what you do and it starts to really weigh on you. It may be really depressed constantly having to lie. Oh, how'd you learn how to code? Well, actually I was, uh, you know, in prison and they had a course called intermediate web page and I took it like, you know, I can't say that. I can't say that. So I have to like fabricate. And then, and I, I just like bend the truth, which it was true. Like, oh, a friend of mine was going to take this course. I decided to take it with him. That was true. I just left out that that decision was made in prison, right? It's like, oh, I got my first taste of it. And then I just started buying books to continue to learn and used any opportunity I could in front of a computer to continue programming. Also true. Just didn't mention that for the next about year and a half, I didn't have access to a computer and I picked that back up when I got out. 
you know, it's just about like bending those truths, you know, and it's like, oh, well, where did you work? And, and I'd be like, oh, and I, not a full lie. I'd be like, oh, I did a lot of freelancing and consulting, which I did. I did IT and website development and stuff, freelancing and, and consulting work, the little bits I could get, like doing a local plumber's website or, you know, something like that, helping somebody get all the viruses off their computer. Wonder how those got there. <laughs> But like, you know, yeah, it, it's stuff like that. So that's what I had to do. I had to fabricate this false history. So part of me coming out and talking about this was also selfish. It was just very depressing. And I was tired of lying all the time. And I was finally in a position where I felt that while coming forward about this part of my life could still have negative impacts, that I have enough of a time distance and enough of an identity that I could probably still have a future in tech. And that's when I did. I was at major league soccer and uh, I let my team know and the people around me know. And then I posted uh, a blog post about it. And that's really when everyone started to find out this is only 2018, 2019. I got my first job in tech or 2018. I got my first job in tech in, in 2013. So it's like five years I went with only telling a couple people. Yeah. I was about to ask if you still, have to lie because I was like, I feel like the minute you Google you, that's like one of the first thing that comes up this really incredible post about your experience. And it's like, if, yeah. if someone didn't, if they didn't check your Twitter, like I'm sort of questioning the due diligence that they did and just relying on a background check seems a little odd if they haven't even looked up your social media, like your public technical social media, not, right. you know, looking right. to see if you have a Facebook with lots of beer cans behind you sort of thing. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you'd be amazed. Like, I mean, people don't look at your social media first. Like, it's interesting. Like when, when we think about especially tech hiring, right? Like you're a resume in a pile. And before you even get to that pile, you're just a resume that gets pumped through a system. A lot of times, you know, it's like, until you build a network, that is often, yeah, you, you are a victim of that a lot of times. Like they're not going to know who you are personally before they see you on paper. And so, yeah, that's very detrimental. But yeah. Yeah, you would think they would do a little bit of research and look that up. It's actually funny. You brought up a good point, which is like, if you search, you'll bring it up. And I worked so hard to actually get my actual like prison from North Carolina thing, like pushed off the first page and build a public profile. And now it's right back at the top but because <laughs> I put it there. And so that is really funny. But that um, matters, but yeah, right? It like matters. voluntary disclosure versus something that you don't have control over. That is a huge, huge difference. I'm thinking of Absolutely. the Meghan Markle thing right now where everyone's like, she sued because they published a, a letter with her father, but now she's disclosing her pregnancy. And I'm like, yeah, very different. One she chose to and the other one she yes. did not. Exactly. Yeah, it's a huge difference. But yeah, it's just really interesting to think about that I'm back at the top of Google <laughs> now for being formally incarcerated. But yeah, under much better terms, and I get to tell my story and explain why, you know, not just be like a mugshot with some records. If you had asked me before this episode, have you ever worked with an incarcerated person while, while you're working in tech? I privately would have told myself no. I mean, I, met, I probably would have said, I'm not sure, but I probably like, I think my like implicit bias would have said no. Yeah. And I think this is making me realize like, I probably have, and I think probably yeah. a lot of our listeners have too. And yep. it just sort of either A, didn't come up at all, or B, like was handled in a way that it didn't get around to the rest of the workforce and which is probably the best thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. There are some companies that like, I have found the companies that 
do actually advocate for like formally incarcerated. They do it really well. And like, uh, you know, only because I'm so vocal is that why like my team knows, like even at Apollo, you know, they're very careful about it. Like we talked about my background actually coming up and then they were like, well, this wasn't supposed to show up, but like, even regardless, like we're not going to hold this against you, even if it was within the time frame. And it was very nice. And like, you know, this is between us. It won't matter. And I'm like, well, I've kind of let the cat out of the bag. So like, it's not a big deal if it's between us, but I loved seeing the approach that they did, they took. And you're right. You probably have worked with people who were incarcerated before. Like it's a large percentage of people who have been to prison in the U.S., a very large percentage, way more than it should be. And so, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to think about. But you're right. It hasn't come up. You know, most people who have been incarcerated aren't going to just like leap out and be like, oh, that's an interesting thing. Let me tell you about the time I was locked up and how this says like, you know, so they're going to keep that to themselves because you never know how people are going to take it. You just don't know how people will react. And some people, even if they are cool with it, will still look at you differently. And I've had situations like that happen, you know, and it's just, it's tough to deal with, but it's a part of life. And again, I'm not trying to make this like a sob story. Like I did things that put me in prison and I did my time and, and I, I've paid my dues to society rightfully. So, well, there's a whole thing about like the sentencing and, and what we should be doing in the U S but According to law, I paid my dues and I was released. And really, the buck should stop there. But you don't stop doing time when you're released. You continue to do it pretty much forever. Because the U.S., again, we have this stigma around prisons. And why do we have that? Because the prison industrial complex is pushing this agenda that, like, we have a lot of crime and we need a lot of cops and we need to lock people up. And people who come out of prison or in prison are felons and bad people and deserve to be there, right? Like, this is instilled into us from the time that we're kids. And that's why I say the, the two most important things are providing stability for folks getting out and helping destigmatize having a record, you know, and helping break down the prison industrial complex. Like, that's it's the only way we see a future where this is not an issue. This could probably be a whole other episode, but you saying that and talking about, you know, there are felons and they're bad people and they're and it's still still to us. It's the idea of a binary identity, which exists yes. in so many different places in our society. And there's good and bad and there's right and wrong. And there's the reason that people hate using this term because it's incredibly racist and problematic. It's black and it's white. Like all of these yes. things are rooted in the same ideology, which is that some to simplify the way that our brain experiences life, we can categorize things into one is good and one is bad. And that's not the way the world works. And that's not who people are. And, you know, people take bad actions and they take good actions, but that doesn't make them bad people or good people. And a lot of the reason we do that is because we like to tell ourselves we're good people. And I love, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this phrase. I'm sure all of us have heard this phrase, but the phrase, you didn't make good choices, you had good choices is the same as the meritocracy argument, which is like, yeah. you had the ability to get somewhere because you started on third base. You had the ability to make all the right decisions and do all the things right because you had stability and resources and comfort. And without those things, would you have made the same choices as the person that you're looking down on? 
Probably, honestly, probably. And you just have no idea what that's like. So I appreciate you pointing that out because I think like we've all, we've had episodes in the past about binary identities and, and sort of what problems that causes. So Kurt, you called out something that's pretty interesting that was sort of going by in, in what you were saying earlier about how Apollo treated you when they found out about your record and the way they went through that. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, if there's someone who's a hiring manager, maybe at a small company without a giant HR organization and strict policies around like the sort of hiring, what is a good way for that person to handle, you know, when they find out through the background check that the candidate that they really like is, uh, you know, has a record of some sort. Like, what's the good path there? Yeah, there's two things there. So I want to answer that question. But one thing I do want to actually circle back to very quick, which is what you said about like bigger companies with stricter policies. In my experience, it's actually the bigger companies that you have an easier chance of getting a job at. They have huge HR departments and law teams and want to protect themselves and will make sure that they're actually following the proper hiring laws and state regulations for wherever it is they are. Like I had no problem getting a job at AWS, but when you flip it in reverse to these startups and they outsource their HR, right, to these other companies, that is actually where most of the trip ups happen because they don't have well, a lot of times it's ignorance of the situation. They're ignorant of the fact they're violating hiring and labor laws, right? Like, And so they don't even know. So I just want to state that as something because that was something I learned too that actually shifted my job search function was I would actually target more organized companies because I stood a better chance of knowing that if they did do a background check, it would actually follow the state guidelines. But to answer the question, that's a really good point. A really good question, I mean, and a tough one to answer. I think just number one is like making no assumptions, right? Like there's a couple things and this actually kind of relates to some other stuff. So there's going to be, you can't be defensive. I've discovered that a lot of times when people find out that you have a background, they feel somewhat lied to, right? And it's like, I didn't come up front about it up forward, but it's kind of a bomb, right? Like when it lands, and again, we have the stigma about people with records and then they see it, you know, their first instinct is to be like, well, well, why didn't you share this with me? The obvious reason that it wasn't shared with you, but you might not be realizing it at the time is because like, I don't know if it's going to matter getting this job. It's something that could hurt me and I don't want to reveal it until you've had a chance to get to know me. So just know that the reason that they did not share it with you is because they wanted you to know them as a person and go through the interview process before you find out about something like this. They're just trying to get a little bit of empathy from you. The second thing is to avoid things like feigned surprise, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you have a record, or I never would have guessed that you would have a background, right? And it's like things like that, you know, they start to split somebody's identity and make them feel like, again, we talk about this good and bad binary, and that's going to really cause them a lot of stress and anxiety. So you want to avoid things like that. And then the last thing to do is just to continue to treat them the exact same way that you did before you knew. If you can do those things, that person is going to feel safe and they're going to have a great experience working with you. Great. That's super handy. I I imagine that there are some people out there having that question like, oh, you know, I've never been in that situation, but what, you know, what's the best way to handle that? So it's it's definitely good to know. Totally outside the episode, but, uh, Mandy Moore just released a screenshot of a place that wanted to interview her about her entire career. 
And she said she wouldn't talk about the abuse allegations against her ex-husband. And they canceled the interview and they said it would be essential to the story. And she said, if you only want me for my trauma when I have a 20 to 30 year long career, then I have no interest in having this conversation and how upsetting that was. And it's like one person is not their worst, not their, I mean, not even a mistake, right? Like one person is not their association with another person's bad actions. Yeah. That actually brings up a really interesting topic too, which is like people trying to take advantage of. So when we talk about lifting others up, I often find myself in situations where people are just blatantly trying to take advantage of me and my willingness to help folks. That happens all the time. Oh, so just like a lot of things like private companies will want me to do like, you know, webinars or talks on things like about like, you know, breaking into tech and just like different topics or ask me for access to my network or like, do I know formerly incarcerated folks who might be interested in contract work? And like, I can tell that they're asking because they feel like they could get them for a cheaper price. You know what I mean? Like they're not going to have to pay them as much. And it's like a lot of shady business practices and stuff like that. So I get that on the regular. It's pretty frustrating. Oh my gosh. It's women in tech in a different outfit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It feels the same. Like hearing you explain it. I'm like, yep. 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 Yeah. It's been an interesting side effect of this. Yeah. That reminds me of, uh, we had Vinny Kuchi on the show a while back talking about the diversify tech system platform that she's built and how people pay to, to post jobs to her audience. But she does a lot of work to vet those companies to make sure that they're not going to just come in the door and be kicked out again in eight months because there's no support for, uh, you know, actually having those sorts of people join the team. And so, like, it's, it's such a, an important trust relationship there with with the community you represent, especially because most of them need to be somewhat on the DL as yep. being part of that community. It's like... If you're a black woman, it's it's no surprise that you're a part of that community, but it's still so important for you as someone who's much more public and representing them that that you have to be so careful about who you're connecting to. Mm -hmm. This has been one of the biggest holdups for me starting this nonprofit and providing training is like. There's a lot of issues with exposing people through this, right? So it's like the end goal would be for them to leave and be able to like seek training, but like the real problem or employment, but the real problem becomes like afterwards when you are trying to help them seek employment or freelance jobs, it's like you have to disassociate your network and attachment with them from that nonprofit. And if a lot of people know that I'm doing that nonprofit, then they're going to automatically start to assume everyone who I provide through my network is going to be coming from this program. So there's just like a lot of things I've been very much trying to figure out, like, how do I prioritize these folks and vulnerable people in general? And I think a lot of that has to do with why, I don't know. I've I've like, why I've been so hesitant to move forward with this. Like, I don't want to start a nonprofit with the best of intentions, but that the impact of that nonprofit ends up being more harmful than good. Right. it's like, who does that really benefit? So 
that's why so far I've been sticking with this more kind of like one-on-one. I know it doesn't scale well, but like, that's okay. If I help some people, it's better than helping no one, first of all. And second of all, helping a few people and having that be really beneficial to them as opposed to helping a bunch of people and it might end up good for you or might end up bad for you. And we don't really know, you know, that that seems very risky to me. So I, I think I'm, is why I've been working very slowly at that and really trying to figure out like what does that process look like once they're done training because like there's still a lot of unknowns there. Yeah, it's a conundrum that most you know training programs and and diversity programs don't have to deal with because most of them you know they want to highlight the intersections of the people that they're you know yeah. that come through their program because that's part of you know what they're what they're after and bring and raising the profile there and and you have the exact opposite situation which is how do you how do you sort of smuggle them in before everyone yeah you know prejudges exactly and so it completely flips the game on its head like i i actually i think it was you Lori, that tweeted uh, like if you had your salary your you know developer salary and you could do anything what would you do i would actually become a prison reform lawyer so i think the real goal is to stop the flow of folks going in the band-aid is helping folks come out right like the real work is stopping folks from going in to begin with but i can't go back to school for another eight years to become a lawyer and then you know move forward with that direction so that's why when i talk about i've been helping uh, sponsor prison reform lawyers and look for ways to get involved with that, looking for, you know, I've offered volunteer time to the Marshall Project to help with them and their data collection efforts and stuff like that. And it's like, uh, you know, again, taking myself out of the center, like the nonprofit, I'm very centered in that scenario. And I feel like I can have a bigger impact in more areas by just contributing as opposed to like being the creator of the thing. So right now, you know, that's kind of where my mind is at while I feel out this nonprofit and see if I can develop something I'm comfortable with from that. Well, I was just going to say, I was doing that math and you just said eight years. Does that mean you have your GDE? This may not be a thing that I know. Uh, yeah, I have my GED and no uh, college education. Yeah. I mean, I went to college for a little over a year for graphic design, but could not afford to go anymore. So stopped. And then that's like my education. So in order to get a law degree, I would first have to get a bachelor's. So I need four years of college. I don't know how many of my credits would be transferable from graphic design. And then I would have to go to law school afterwards and then still deal with certain states. Like if I can even take the test for the bar or be on the bar being a convicted felon, which in most states you can, but there are still states where you cannot. So the reason I asked, and it wasn't to, you know, do the math, but it was more, that is another community that you belong to that I think perhaps in the past uh, had a very different set of opportunities available to them in tech. And as tech has become, you know, higher paying and we've done a lot more recruiting from, you know, the Stanford's and the MIT's and Harvard and Yale and all of those things. Like it used to be, you could break in, it goes back to the self-taught, right? Like you could break in without any undergrad degree. And now that's getting harder and harder and harder and harder. So I'm curious if, you know, obviously it's hard to decouple those based on your experience because you were formerly incarcerated and you didn't have, you know, that formal bachelor's degree. But have you seen situations in which that has been a different community that you're a part of, or that has impacted the opportunities that you can pursue? 
Yeah, I wouldn't be able to separate like in my mind. And I, I mean, maybe if I went back and thought about it, but in my mind, every time I've been ghosted has primarily been, I felt like, well, it stopped me from not applying to a lot of places. That's for sure. So it's blocked me from feeling confident enough to even apply. And that was definitely in the beginning before, like I knew the industry and how bad most job applications like postings are and realized that the requirements they often ask for are way beyond what you actually need to do the job. But yeah, I didn't know that. So I would see like needs a bachelor's degree and I'd be like, yep, not applying to that one, you know? And so I, I guess I, yeah, I did miss out on a lot of opportunities just from that. But most times I feel like if it came down to a decision and I went through the interview process and they did like a background check, I just always assumed it was the background check that I got ghosted. Yeah. Usually if the degree is going to be a factor, it's, it's right at the front of the process. Pretty early on. Yeah. I, but I, it could I, be a deciding factor, especially with uh, like entry level folks, right? Like two people made it through the interview process. They both did really well. It really comes down to what the person who makes that decision cares more about. Do they care more about like this on paper or some sort of like behavioral give that seems like, you know, this person would be better to work with, right? It's like, what do they care about? Right. And so, yeah, it can definitely have huge effects, but I don't, this gets into a whole nother discussion, but like, that's just like the tech industry and hiring in general is just terrible. And broken beyond broken. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. you know, um, the fact that it can come down to whether or not you get a job based on the preference of the person who's looking at the things in front of you is just super problematic. But yeah, like I, I definitely feel that I'm sure there's a lot of cases where people would see one has a degree, the other does not. And they're going to go pfft, taking the CS grad anytime because we're about to go write all these algorithms. Kurt, do you know my favorite story? about ridiculous things that should not be a thing. Oh, I can't wait. So I was interviewed for a job, internal transfer. I got the job. They sent the paperwork to HR and HR said, sorry, you can't hire her because she is a bachelor of arts in mathematics, not a bachelor of science in mathematics. Literally not even joking. This is a real thing that happened. I was halfway through a master's of science in computer science because I was annoyed by the fact that they cared that I had a bachelor of arts. And they said, so because she doesn't have the right degree, she needs to have the right amount of courses that would be equivalent to the degree. In that case, that was 16 computer science or math specific, like hard science courses, which is more than the bachelor's degree was required. So if I had that, I would have had a bachelor's degree of science in computer science (laughs) or a bachelor's degree of arts in computer science because I went to a liberal arts school and they are not accredited to give bachelor's of science regardless of what your major is. So, you know, on the scale of ridiculous things that happen in tech, just add that as a as a fun story to remember. I just, it's like, what goes through their heads? It's like, oh, well, we must adhere to this policy because clearly the policy makes more sense than somebody who has worked here, has a proven track record of doing their job well, has already moved to the other team and everyone is cool with it. But wait a minute, you don't have enough credits. I got blocked. I didn't get, I didn't get to move. To be fair, it was the federal government. So that's sort of how the world works, but still. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's just still, yeah, it shouldn't work like that. And yeah, it's just, it's symptomatic of, you know, the ridiculous hiring process that we've developed as a tech industry. It just like, I don't know. I've worked in construction. 
I've worked in the restaurant industry. Like I've worked in a lot of other places and like none of my interviews have ever felt really like somebody was trying to like prove that they knew something I didn't or like catch me in a gotcha. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like every, and this is what I mean by tech interviews are more stressful than even when I was interviewing at all those other jobs combined, <clears throat> because I never felt like I was being interrogated. And that's the difference. Like, honestly, tech interviews feel a lot like when I was actually being interrogated. So that should tell you something. Whoa. Trying, it just feels like they're constantly trying to trip you up, trying to get you to say something that disagrees with what you said five minutes ago, prove they know something that you don't. Does all this like sound familiar? Right. I yeah. mean, Kurt, if your personal brand is that you're kind and you help people and you were formerly incarcerated and you do cool things now, you know that mine is just railing against tech interviews. So <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. this is a known thing. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But yeah, it's very, a very aggressive interview process. It's often pits folks against each other as opposed to like working with each other. I just have never been a big fan of tech interviews. Terrible yeah. for anyone who has ever yeah. had anxiety in their life or deals with oh, any yeah. kind of like PTSD or trauma. Yep. Yeah. Nope. It's really uh, my favorite tweet about this is that Tatiana explained that she felt it was equivalent to uh, it was an abusive relationship and that it's sort of and they string you along for seven interviews and then they're like oh well you don't have the skill that we need except you would have known that I didn't have this skill because it was on my resume and it's been in every conversation but you just put me through all of this just to say no because you told yourself that it was better for me and you were giving me a chance and all of these things and a lot of people came back and they were like that's going a step too far and I was like you know what I honestly don't think it is it really is that bad and that's horrifying and it's why so many people stay in toxic work environments because the idea of going through a toxic interview process doesn't feel like something they can possibly do yeah and th those folks who are saying it ain't that bad are probably the ones who are normally on the other side of that table so <laughs> yeah I always find I have to hold my tongue when, when people are in otherwise, you know, decent situations or even when they're bad situations, you know, and my, my automatic recommendation is, well, start looking for something else. But I always, I yeah. always have to back up from that and, and not say that because, you know, if there's any sort of difference in, in like privilege between us that like, I can't give that advice because there, it's such, so much more work for them than for me. Um, yep. So I have to be very careful. Yeah. That's a, another really awesome point and something that I have worked a lot on over the last two years in helping folks, which is like contextualizing my advice and making sure that I'm anything that I share is like comes with the statement that like this was my experience and may not be your experience. And then also like reach out to other folks who share similar situations to you to like you know, trust, but verify this advice, right. And like, make sure that it lines up with their experiences as well. And also why I always try to connect people that I'm working with to people who are more representative of them than myself. If we're, you know, that far off, right. Like it's hard for me to share advice with a black woman 
because I don't have that lived experience. I don't know a lot of the issues that they'll hit. And even being as aware of the harm that I can cause and my privilege as I am, I still will cause harm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's about connecting folks. Like a big part of what I do, honestly, is just connecting folks quietly. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. When you're poised to give advice, having that second thought of, okay, I can give this advice, but I, you know, I need to put all the caveats on there to, you know, point out that like, this may not be your experience, but then being able to follow that up with someone else in your network who is going to be able to give something much more accurate and representative as I think is a really useful second step there. Absolutely. This was a conversation probably a few months back, but people had a similar association with, you know, people coming out of boot camps right now and people trying to enter the tech industry right now. And anyone who did it even three years ago, probably doesn't have the relevant advice or lived experience to understand what it's like with the oversaturation of people coming in with very, very similar skill sets, especially true in the front end area, because there's so many boot camps that have just popped up in the React space specifically, because there are a ton of jobs that are needed there, but there also need to be senior resources to help those junior resources. And I hate the term junior, but it's a similar thing where it's like, yeah, I did it five years ago. I did it 10 years ago. And the amount of time in which your experience is relevant is getting shorter and shorter and shorter every day. And it's very, very challenging to tell someone or give them advice on, this is how you stand out in an interview process. This is how you stand out in a resume when you just have no idea what the current environment is like. Yeah. You know, this is, and it's interesting because it's repetitive. Like I call this the JavaScript bubble and like it's popping, right? It's at the point where it's popping and JavaScript (laughs) is, it's, it is We're we're, we're meeting the inflection point where there are so many people. It used to be that like getting a job doing JavaScript development was a bit easier because like when node first came out, and JavaScript started being used in all these different places. And like we started building entire front ends, SPAs and JavaScript, 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 right? Everyone started to learn JavaScript. And we saw this with UX design. So I don't know how many folks remember this, but like there was a time when like UX design was first coming to be a thing. It was a very high paid, very sought after uh, role. And then a lot of schools started to focus curriculum on UX design. And eventually so many people entered the industry and eventually enough people will become senior in that industry that that runs out, right? The market flips. Now it becomes there's too many people for the jobs that are available. And like, while I think JavaScript, you know, we're, we're getting there, but like eventually this is going to happen as well. All the boot camps focus on JavaScript. All this is coming out. Those people who came out of boot camps two or three years ago are very close to becoming seniors. And it's like, eventually we're going to hit this inflection point where choosing JavaScript as your starting language might actually not be the best opportunity anymore. And I think, here's like my little prediction, is that really things like Python and Rust will probably be the most beneficial over the next few years. Python for the machine learning and AI stuff, almost all of that is written in Python or R uh, for data science. And then uh, Rust just because of the, it's becoming like the next JavaScript. You know, you're being able to run it in a lot of places. It's also way faster and a lot of other things typed and stuff. But yeah, so that's my prediction is that like eventually a couple of years, JavaScript jobs will be much harder to get even at senior level. And the easier path into tech will be less about front end and more about machine learning and backend development with Rust. 
My prediction is that companies that can somehow figure out a way to hire the roles they need without firm requirements on prior technology experience are going to excel. Like, right. So it's like, I need, a, I need Python developers, but I can hire former Ruby developers. That's the, right. Then you can get, you suddenly your pipeline gets so much bigger. Absolutely. It's interesting yeah. because Rust specifically as a language. So I've done Python and Java and JavaScript and PHP for a little while. And those comparatively are sort of, I'd consider them siblings. And Rust to me is much closer to a C type language. It requires a lot more knowledge of what's happening under the hood when you're coding it. And it's a great language, really great error handling, all of that. But it's there are pieces of it that are just harder than using something like JavaScript, harder than using something like TypeScript. And so it's going to be really interesting to see that evolve. I actually, Kurt, I agree with you. I think Rust is going to be everywhere, but I think Rust is going to be everywhere in the tooling and system space. And so many of those software technologies are open source and therefore aren't funded. And so actually getting a job that pays you to write in Rust is going to be, I'm interested to see how it evolves. I think you may be right, but there's this really weird kind of give and take of like where Rust excels and where we tend to pay people to build proprietary things. And I'm very curious to see what the overlap is going to end up being. Yeah, that's very true. And again, this is based right on like my experience of what I've seen. And I'm just thinking about the emergence of like FOSS, which is like financed open source software. Uh, and like us at Apollo specifically, like we're using Rust for a lot of things in our backend. New CLI is built in Rust. And those are people who are paid to write open source software. And I think as the emergence of FOSS continues to grow, combined with like the flexibility and adoption of Rust, I do think that like it stands to be a pretty good. Now, I did say backend, but I should step back. I don't mean like APIs. Like I don't see a lot of APIs written in Rust. Much more of like what you're talking about: systems, infrastructure, command line tooling, stuff like that. I just kind of bucket all of that into backend. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> um, I call yeah. it middle end. Yeah, middle end. There you go. Um, yeah. It's the back end of the front end. It's the tooling ecosystem. And the only reason I call it that is because it's really hard to describe what the heck I do every day. It's not, <laughs> it's not front end. It's not It's not like CSS. And it's not back end. I don't touch databases anymore. I don't make fetch calls. I yeah. build middle end. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. We need a better term for it, though, because no one can describe it. And it's a very large, ever-growing set of software that needs to be built. It's basically yeah. software that allows other developers to be productive. And just to touch on what Jacob mentioned before, I completely agree that companies who are smart enough to recognize it's not about the technology specifically are just always going to excel. And those who are even like willing to let like have polyglot environments and like let teams figure out what is the right technology stand so much of a better chance to be successful in just about anything. Right. Like that's, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's, the, it's the environment to like know that like when I hire someone with not the specific technology that I need them to eventually do, are they going to be successful? Like yeah. What, because I don't, I don't, I don't actually know what that means, but I think that's a really challenging question. It is, but I think a good example of this might be like a backend engineer. Like you're familiar with caching and like why that's important and like performant database operations and like mm -hmm. how you structure and organize your APIs, right? And it's like 
remove Python and drop in Ruby or Java or anything, and all those principles still remain and are very important. And yes, the the surrounding technology has changed, but you've also surrounded them with a team of people who are extremely familiar with that technology. And there's something to be said that it is definitely, in my opinion, easier to ramp up in a new language in an environment like that than it is to like completely adopt a new part of the stack or something where it's like the underlying things that are important and that you just have to understand and have experience dealing with. Those are really heavy. Yeah. I agree with all of that, except Rust. Rust is my <laughs> exception to everything right now because it's such a mindset shift and like mutability and ownership is just such yeah. a wild thing that doesn't exist in any other language. And I'm sorry, I'm being a total like nerd right now, but yeah, I no, I, I absolutely agree. And I think anyone can learn any language. I, think people can read Rust if they know JavaScript. I'm still, I like know like how to write five lines of Rust. So this isn't even me gatekeeping something I understand. I'm saying I don't understand it yet and it's hard. And <laughs> I've learned a lot of different languages over the years. And I used to do exactly what Jacob was just implying because I was a consultant. And so I had to learn whatever language the client was using. And I've done that for PHP and I've done that with Python and Java and that sort of thing. And I actually don't think I could do it with Rust. I really don't think I could unless I was given like a couple months to sit down and study. It's hard. It's awesome, but it's hard. That's fair. I mean, that is also transitioning like levels of abstraction, you know, when we go from something like JavaScript to Rust, which is very valid. I had to spend a year working in C++ and it was horrible for me <laughs> personally, just for me, right? Like I don't like being that close. I don't want, I want my garbage collected for me. I, I don't want to know what I've put into memory. I really don't care. Like, I mean, I care about performance, but like, I don't want to be responsible at that level for it. I had a lot of issues with C++ and memory leaks. Like just going to say. Yeah, I've never had to learn a C language. And I think that's part of why Rust is so hard for me. I always assumed Java was very similar to C. And I think in a lot of ways it is. But the the automatic garbage collection is like a really big distinction between languages. It really is. That's funny. So at the end of every episode, we like to do what we call reflections, which is uh, each uh, panelist and guest get a chance to reflect on the things that they enjoyed most about the conversation or the ideas that they're going to be thinking about for days afterwards. So who would like to start with that? I can take it. I've got something that I've been thinking about. We started off talking about community, and I said something that I've been running through my mind since, which is like communities aren't things that you're a part of. Like community is what you surround yourself with. And I think that that's been an interesting distinction for me and has helped me break down barriers between different parts of my life and make it easier for me to connect those different parts of my life. And it's something that I think I'm going to express probably pretty soon in some form of writing or another, because it's just a change in mindset that I think has been really beneficial to me and allowed me to be more of my whole self, like especially online, um, than I had been previously. So, I think my takeaway is that we all know and have experienced the fact that interviews can be a bit of a landmine depending on who you are and what you're trying to accomplish and hearing and having empathy and understanding both as, you know, a hiring manager or someone who's involved in making these choices or someone who's a fellow, you know, prospective candidate for roles, having empathy and understanding for the fact that 
this is infinitely more challenging to navigate if you have things in your background that employers have not previously looked kindly upon. And knowing that those people not only have to navigate that, but they also have to know their legal rights in a country that isn't really great about providing that. And that if you get an opportunity in the future and you look up those rights and you know the fact that they shouldn't be able to look X number of years in your background, even if there's nothing there for them to find and you can push back on the behalf of someone else in the future, like you can have an impact and paying attention and knowing those rules when you aren't required to know them can be really important and really helpful. So we talked a little bit about like polyglotism. One thing that really appealed to me to the job that I'm in now is when I, during the hiring process, they seemed pretty not concerned with specific technology like I was talking about. That was really like a positive for me. And so we write Python at my job. And what I'm thinking about is like, what's work that I can do on my team that if we hire somebody new who is new to Python, like would be able to like get up to speed as fast as possible. What are, what are like sort of the implicit idioms of Python that could be made more explicit or like what, what are things that could be done that sort of are make it not so quite so gatekeepy. And then that, what that transitioned me to is another thought is like, okay, I was thinking earlier about how there's probably someone at my company who was formerly incarcerated and I just don't know it. What are things I could do on my team that like would make their life better in some way, right? Without them having to tell me without like, I need to actually know who that specific person is. Like what are, what are some things that would just sort of like make their life better working with me? Yeah. I think that, you know, coming into this conversation, you know, I, I'm aware of how terrible our carceral state is here in the U S but all, I think it's also valuable to sort to get Kurt's perspective on on that and to be reminded, you know, at a personal level, like what that experience is, uh, just to help keep that concept alive in my mind so I can be more aware of the people that are in that situation and, and ways that I can make that easier for them. And also to do, you know, simple administrative things like checking in with my HR department and finding out what their policy is on these things. If nothing else, just so that I can know, and if even more, if there's ways that I can push back on those to say that that's not really something we need to care about, like, why is that requirement there? Um, and so I think that's, uh, that's really helpful for me to keep in mind. Thank you for joining us, Kurt. This was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. This was a blast. I really enjoyed talking to you.